Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and the Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Welcome to the second Policy Forum Pod for 2023. Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about some of the big issues facing Australia and the world, from how we keep children safe from abuse and maltreatment, to the challenges of overconsumption and Australia's national identity, past and future. And of course, we'll be talking about the voice to Parliament. As we move towards the referendum on The Voice later this year, it's so important that we think deeply about our future and about our past. And we can't do that unless we talk honestly about a history of dispossession and genocide. These are incredibly difficult and painful issues, but it's essential if we are to have genuine reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians that we have these conversations. And so to begin the first of several conversations over the coming months, we're joined this week by Professor Kay Orty. Professor Orty is a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne and Chair of Victoria's Environment Protection Authority. She's formerly held positions as a Magistrate in Victoria, where she helped to establish the Koori Court in Shepparton and in the Goldfields and the Western Desert of Western Australia. She's been involved in establishing Aboriginal sentencing courts in consultation with Aboriginal peoples. Her latest book is O'Leary of the Underworld, The Untold Story of the Forest River Massacre, which is something that we all should read, but it is a very confronting read. And a warning to our listeners, the stories in this episode are confronting, and in particular, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that the following program does discuss deceased Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Anna Greta, these are really difficult conversations to have, but they're incredibly important ones. But when we talk to Kate, I think we're going to hear some amazing stories as well of collaboration, of genuine partnership and of working together. Welcome, Professor Kate Orty. It is great to have you with us. I wonder if you might start today's discussion by introducing yourself to our listeners. 
Yeah, thanks, Anna Greta, for having me on your program on this podcast. Uh, look, I live in regional Victoria. I live in a town called Euroa, which is in Tungarong country, and I like to begin by acknowledging Tungarong people. But of me, I, I, I am a professorial fellow at the University of Melbourne, and I chair the governing board of the Environment Protection Authority here in Victoria. Kate, it's so great to have you with us, and, and I do hope that in today's discussion we touch on a few of the gems that you've just offered us in terms of the work that you're doing now. And I know we'll touch on some of the work that you've done previously. I'd actually like to start with your story. And I I know that you grew up in regional and some quite remote parts of Australia. And you've worked as a magistrate in some of the remoter parts of Australia as well. How do you think that history and your, your story, your life story, might have shaped how you think about what it is to be Australian? Oh, gee. Look, I I actually was reflecting on this before this program because I went to nine schools in three states and one territory, I think, and then we landed in Melbourne. From Melbourne, I went to university here and I've been to three different universities at Melbourne as well. So I think what happened in my background, Anna Greta, is we moved so frequently and we moved from remote places to cities that we had to be good at adjusting. So I'm a bit of an adjuster and I'm quite flexible, although some of my Aboriginal friends tell me that I give people a short go, not a long go, so I'm probably a bit intolerant as well. But uh, moved around a lot and spent my early, uh, my first three years of schooling on the Kimberley Research Station, which is just near where, where Kununurra now is. Kununurra didn't exist. And then we were in Darwin sometime after that and came away from Darwin just before the cyclone. At one stage or other, my mother, my older brother, my younger sister and my younger brother, we all lived in a motel in Surface Paradise and we went to a school in Surface Paradise. So it's a bit fragmented and it means that we've had to be good, all of us had to be good at adjusting. And I think that's played out in my understanding of policy implications for people and my desire to be always in interesting work and work where I can make a contribution. So my background has really channeled me in that direction. My parents were very left wing in the time, you know, the 1950s in Queensland. And I think that's also played out in what I think of as my commitment to social justice, which has led to me doing things like my first job as a lawyer was with the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service all over Victoria. I didn't know much about Aboriginal people in Victoria when I took that role on, but field officers who took me from court to court and place to place showed me the bridges under which they'd slept and the paddocks in which they'd picked peas as little kids when I was going to school and relatively comfortably doing so. And that led to me thinking about what we should be doing about what I would describe as loosely now a welfare law practice. And I left that work to establish a practice which worked essentially with a lot of women who were in women's refuges and we did that work, a lot of that work pro bono. And from there ultimately I found my way into the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in Victoria and Tasmania and from there when I finished that particular part of that role I was invited to go and work for Pat Dodson who was doing the underlying issues report in WA So I went to WA and met one of my lifelong friends there who really rattled up my sense of what law and social social work and social justice means, an anthropologist called Sandy Toussaint, who I think you probably know from WA. 
Coming back from there, I did a Master's of Environmental Science, which I deferred, and that really didn't fit very well, I suppose, with my law degree generally. But it was something that I found extraordinarily interesting. And it was the first time I ever really had any teachers that I warmed to. So I I got all the way through my schooling and my undergraduate uh, degrees before I realised what education was all about. And subsequently, I ended up doing a PhD on uh, native courts, they were called in Western Australia from 1935, 36 to 54. And during all that time, I was a barrister. And after that, I um, I was the Koori Court Magistrate in Shepparton. So Sharon, we were just talking about Shepparton and your experience there. And we set up the Koori Court in Shepparton in consultation with Aboriginal people, then did a similar exercise in Kalgoorlie when I went over there to do that came back here and worked as a Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability. And then, Anna Greta, you and I met when I came up to Canberra, taking on a role as the Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability up there. So I think what you see there is a really chequered work history, and some people say, how does that fit together? But I, I, I think it's linked by a, a, an essential personal flexibility and a desire to do what I can to use whatever qualifications I have for the improvement of um, all of us and all of our conditions. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Oh, it's a, look, it's such a remarkable career. And I, I love listening to stories of experiences as diverse as you've had, Kate. I think it's inspirational for me. It's inspirational for so many people listening uh, to think about the ways in which we can use different skills at different times. And what strikes me about your professional career and having known you now for some years is your commitment to social justice. I'd like you to talk a little bit about your work um, in the Indigenous communities, working in Western Australia, working in Victoria, um, and the ways in which your understanding of culture and country, justice and equity, have been influenced, particularly in trying to marry the colonial law alongside the, the, the tremendous power of First Nations identity. Um, how 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 has this influenced your approach to the legal system um, and the inequities that it can perpetuate? Yeah, I've been very fortunate, Anna Greta, and the more I think about it, the older I get. I, I've been mentored by some absolutely wonderful Indigenous people, both men and women, and I, I single out Rochelle Patton, who's a member of the Patton family, who were part of the uh, 1938 Day of Mourning and the 1939 walk off of Kamraganja. And Rochelle is a person who, she doesn't mind me saying, is a person who was raised by a single parent, her mother. And she's the field officer that really gave me a sense of what it was to be an Aboriginal person's um, uh, lawyer in Victoria. And when we set up the Koori Court, it was important for me to have people like Rochelle there to guide me as the magistrate. That Koori Court process in Victoria was an interesting exercise because it it grew out of an Aboriginal Justice Agreement discussion, which had been established by Rob Hulls, as he then was, I think, as, I think as the Attorney General, and Alf Bamblett. And we, we were in the cusp of, we were trying to think of ways to make native title meaningful for Aboriginal people in Victoria and being frozen out by the former Kennett government at the time this Aboriginal Justice Agreement came together. And the agreement gave us the chance in courts, and it's quite unusual, it was quite unusual at the time because it was so formal to do it this way, but it gave us the capacity in the courts, in the lower courts, the magistrates' courts, 
to engage with Aboriginal people about a number of things that were really pivotal for justice outcomes. And the Koori Court in Victoria just celebrated its 20th anniversary last year. So it's been going all that time as a function of the legislation that essentially created it. But we did three things. We set up a liaison officer in the courts themselves, and I know that some magistrates scratched their heads and thought, why do we need that? Just as when I was in WA, some magistrates said, why do we need interpreters? And I was there in Kalgoorlie thinking we absolutely needed interpreters. Uh, In Victoria, coming back to here, we set up not just the liaison officers, but we also made it possible for Aboriginal people to gain the necessary understanding of the bail law for them to become bail justices, which meant that they were channelling people away from remand settings at the very earliest stages of their exposure to the justice system. And then we set up the Koori Court and the Koori Court was set up in Shepparton and everybody I think thought that that was the logical place for it to be and I'd gone up there because that was the understanding and I was probably the best linked to the Aboriginal communities in Victoria of the magistrates at that time. But it was really evident to me that Aboriginal people had reservations about what we were doing about that court. They worried about their exposure to payback within their own communities, however large or little that might prove to be. They really worried about what their role might be in sentencing. They worried about whether a white magistrate was just going to be using them as a rubber stamp and it was just tokenistic. And we were doing it in an old court which really had uh, a history of being quite exclusive So we had to unlearn a lot of things. We had to get prosecutors in to get them to unlearn a lot of things. Court staff told me later that they had unlearned a lot of things. So while we thought we were learning, we were just as equally unlearning. And it was that critical engagement with Aboriginal people of the calibre of Fadi Rochelle Patton and Uncle Colin Walker who made that possible. And one of the really good things we did with that court right at the beginning was we took the legislation, we looked at it, and it said that we could have one elder sitting with the court. I looked around the room and thought, if we have one elder, it will be a gender uh, question because, of course, there were Aboriginal women we wanted to sit at that court to talk to women and be part of a conversation about women's justice issues. And we also wanted men to do it. So the very first thing we did was we bent the legislation. So we unlearnt a lot of things and we bent the legislation and we made it possible just by doing it uh, of incorporating both an Aboriginal man and an Aboriginal woman at the table on the first day we sat. And we danced the court and we smoked the court. And you've now, Sharon, driven past the new court. The old court was a tiny little box We had a courtroom that had no natural light. It had previously been one of the rooms in the court that was used for effectively holding documents and whatever else. It was a filing cabinet type room. And what we did was we just brought in Aboriginal art, we brought in the flags, and we did something that an architect told me was really significant that I didn't know we were doing, which was we established an oval table in the middle of it. Not a long table where someone sits at each end and effectively is ma or pa at the dinner table. And not a round table. An oval table really diffuses the power. So that's what we did with the legislation in Victoria. And when that got up and running, I thought that there was a wonderful opportunity to do similar stuff in Kalgoorlie. The Western Australian courts were looking for somebody and 
I put my hand up for Kalgoorlie. Nobody could quite understand why I wanted to be in Kalgoorlie rather than Perth. There was also a job going in Perth. But I'd been in Kalgoorlie with Pat Dodson with the Royal Commission. So this is how you carry around like a carapace, your story. And when we were in Kalgoorlie with the Royal Commission, there I think from memory there were about six of the 33 deaths in custody had very, very robust links to Kalgoorlie. And it was a town that was coming out of an inquiry about its racist past and the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission had just concluded an investigation that said Kalgoorlie was the most racist town in Australia, which is quite a statement. So a job came up in Kalgoorlie and I thought I would like to do it. And the Attorney General there at the time was a Labor Attorney General, Jim McGinty, and I think he was a bit competitive with Rob Hull. So I think there was a bit of, you know, interest in this all over the country. And I got the offer to go there and went to Kalgoorlie to take on a role without legislation. So this is why I'm going into some detail about this. The, the Koori Court here in Victoria was legislated, so it makes all of the challenges to it a whole lot easier to deal with. If a redneck says to you, why are you doing that? You say, talk to the Attorney General, it's his piece of legislation. But in Western Australia, we didn't have that. So we had to really think about how we grew the court from the grassroots up. And there wasn't a lot of interest, I can tell you, in Aboriginal people talking to the court in Kalgoorlie because we didn't have a very good history of engaging people. And I did say to one of the bright young Aboriginal men in Kalgoorlie that I wanted to talk about what we needed to do. And he said, if you've got five years, we can probably start the conversation. Now, I said to him, I haven't got five minutes because my chambers was on top of the cells and on a Monday morning those cells were full of people. And I thought we can do better than this. We must do better than this. And I wondered about what strengths I might have to engage people because I'm not a Kalgoorlie person. You know, I was there shaking hands with as many new Aboriginal people as white people for me. And I thought, what's the strength that I bring to this as a woman magistrate in the goldfields who's from over east because they're quite parochial in Western Australia, as you might well know. And I thought it was actually the fact that I was a woman. So I said to a young Aboriginal man who I'd got the court to employ, could we ask Aboriginal women in this town to come along to a meeting to talk about these matters? Let's do it after hours and let's just open the court doors and see what happens. And there was a lot of um, conflict in that region about native titles. So we were all a bit concerned that we would get nobody or that those who came might be locked in conflict about other matters. So we opened the doors that night and we got 25 Aboriginal women to the court, which was unheard of. And it was because we had an Aboriginal person who extended the hand of friendship and interest. It was because it was a women's thing, I think. And we sat there in that court from about five o'clock till eight o'clock. And there was a bit of robust conversation, I can tell you. It wasn't straightforward. And that was amongst the women themselves. And it was very clear to me that there were um, differing camps in the group. But uh, we got through the first meeting and decided to have another one because the other thing you've always got to do is make sure that you don't stop once you've got started. I think that's it's probably not a policy statement, but it's a practical one. And we made a determination we would have another meeting. And I came into court the next morning and I had Uncle Aubrey Lynch on the phone to me. Now, he is a very senior Aboriginal man. 
comes out of the Western Desert, grew up in Warburton, has a deep Christian faith and was very involved with mining and, and other matters in, in Algoli and around that area, around the goldfields. And Uncle Aubrey was on the phone to me and I thought, oh, God, now I'm in trouble. And I really did think that. I'm not just saying that. I really do think now we're in trouble. And he said to me on the phone, you had a meeting with the women last night. And I said, we did. And he said, when are you meeting with the men? And so then we organised a meeting with the men, so this female magistrate, off we go. Um, and then we had another meeting with the women and then we um, got going with that particular court. So that's two stories about courts, one with law, one without, or one with legislation, one without. And uh, the reality was that both of them brought people along in a way that it can often be surprising. Kate, that's a, a remarkable story, both in terms of the work that you've done, but, but also the way um, that engagement and collaboration and partnership has led to, to real change and to us not just learning but unlearning um, mm. the, the way in which we think about things like law, social justice and equity and, and having those conversations with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, there's a lot, Kate, that we'd, we'd like to... to to follow on from that, we'd like to talk a little bit more about truth-telling and about voice. But for now, we're going to take a very short break and we'll be back very soon to continue this conversation with Kate Orty. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers, populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Kate Orty um, and talking about the way in which we can learn and unlearn in order to think differently about the kind of country that we have. Kate, I wanted to turn our attention um, to the Uluru Statement of the Heart and that statement, which is a remarkable document. And remember when Arnie Greta and I spoke with... um, Pat Anderson, about that document. She described it as a gift to Australia um, that white people could either choose to accept or not. And I think it is indeed an incredible gift. And that that statement talks about voice, about treaty and about truth-telling. And we want to come to, to, to talk about voice in a moment, but I wanted to begin with truth-telling because this is as hard as it is important. You recently... Re- published a a remarkable book, Leary of the Underworld, where you talk about one of the most horrendous and confronting parts of our history, um, and that is the massacres that were committed against 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and you particularly talk about um, incredible violence that took place in the Kimberley. I wanted to ask you, Kate, you might want to tell us a little bit about the background to that book, but I really wanted to, to ask your thoughts on how we begin to talk about the terrible side of history in this country and what role do white Australians have in creating safe spaces for truth-telling? Yeah, look, I've been thinking a lot about this truth-telling question because of the book, because of O'Leary of the Underworld. I know that there are still people who deny that the massacres in 1926 happened and that they will take um, a rod to me about that book. But when I sat down and thought about why it was important to talk about it, it was because I don't think we can progress as a country into what I would describe as a mature frame until we recognise what we've done in the past. And I think we've got to understand that this is not a parlour game. It really was ugly. It really was terrifying. And it really has left a great scar on our psyche. And while O'Leary of the Underworld is about 1926, the work that I did that sat behind it really really um, rattled me and I've, I've seen a lot of nastiness in my time as a lawyer, I have to tell you. It rattled me. And if I just share one story that has nothing to do with O'Leary and nothing to do with courts, a book that I took off the shelf the other day, Mary Gilmore's More Reminiscences, has an essay in it which she wrote or published in 1935, which I've never heard of and you probably haven't either. And it's called The Whip and it's just a reminiscence of her time sitting around with her uncle who was replanting a whip handle and he was asked where he got it and he told the assembled group and it was her just sitting there as a child and some stockmen sitting around with him that he had been out in the bush and he was looking for some calves and he smelled a dead smell was what he said. Now, I think probably your listeners need to be given a bit of a warning about this story, so maybe you should think about that, a dead smell. And he came upon a 12-year-old girl lashed to a tree with the whip, with whip holding her arms behind her, and she was dead. And the people who sat around talking about this story knew who that man was. It's very clear from how Mary Gilmore tells it. They knew who he was. They had been out with him on other instances where he'd ridden down Aboriginal people. They talked about whether you would use a round or a square stirrup iron for the greatest effect. And none of them were going to or were prepared to put him in, dob him in, tell the police that this man did this stuff. Now, I thought about that for a long time after I read that story, Reminiscence, and it struck me that what really got me exercised about the O'Leary story was not so much that we've got to know about the frontier war and wars, which we do, and that's what happened, but we've got to know about the stuff that wasn't even a contest where people were violently dealt with in circumstances where they were arbitrarily selected and they were intensely vulnerable and the people who did it to them 
were never, ever recriminated. The Gilmore story is one of them. This Forest River story is another one. And I start that book with O'Leary and a constable called St Jack on, on, on the say-so of Suleiman, the tracker, who was a witness who somehow strangely went missing, taking these two men, St Jack and O'Leary, taking three women to a place where when Ernest Gribble, the missionary, and James Noble, the Aboriginal missionary, found the site, it was evident there had been a fire, it was evident that there were piles of teeth in three piles, and it was evident that the three women had been walked into this particular tree and they hadn't been walked out. And the reason I start the book with that story is this is women. These women were not part of what occurred to spark the posse, which was getting uh, revenge for what had happened to a white pastoralist who was killed by a man called O'Leary. And I think that we need to understand that it was vicious, it was arbitrary and it was bloody-minded and we need to understand that that's our past. And when I sat down and thought about, well, what do we bring to this, I also went back to the bookshelf and people don't think books are necessarily the things that tell us about life but I think in our case and in our country they do. And the historical records of Australia contain numerous stories, you know, right back to the eighteen early 1800s not dissimilar to the one I've just talked about. Now, the reason I think we've got to do this work is, as I say, a mature country understands its past and by understanding its past can move on and say, well, we need to, we need to work out a way to um, courteously, courteously embrace the gift that is the Uluru Statement that's being extended to us in circumstances where it's difficult for me to understand the generosity of Aboriginal people knowing that history. So I think knowing our history elevates the, the, the generosity of that gift and I think we need to do that. Kate, that is such an incredible, powerful way of explaining the importance of the ordinary statement from the heart, but also mapping for us how confronting, how deeply painful our history is but also the need for us to confront that history, to not shy away from talking about it. Because until we do, we can't have a truthful origin story of where this country has come from. And without that truth, we can't build our vision for the future, a vision that is genuinely based on social justice. Kate, the, the stories that you told make me feel ill to hear. I also hear in the research that I do stories around the stolen generations, which I think is, is also part of this truth-telling and the ongoing legacy and pain that that has. And I think the, 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 the importance of us telling that truth but telling it in a way that you describe that is just, that is courteous and respectful and recognises the pain around it is just so incredibly important. Yeah. And, and look, I've, I've started saying to people when they ask me to talk about the book, I say, I've written a horrible book and I can see them all go, oh, God, is she telling us not to get it? In fact, what I'm saying to people is this is a book that I'm acutely aware contains uh, 
you know, really painful, really pa- a really painful narrative. But also, look out of out of all of this, Sharon. I just want to I just want to claim something back too, because here I sit in this little town of Euroa, and we've been building over you know ten fifteen years our theory of change, and our theory of change is one of um, encouragement for me, and it's very simple, and it's basically you get started, start where you are. That's what we do. Get organised, take responsibility and share and then show what you did. And if you'll bear with me, this brings me almost immediately to the work I've done in environmental context, so straight through to the Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability work in both Victoria and the ACT because I learned that as an individual magistrate, of course, you're always communicating what it is your decision is and you're always making sure people understand it if you're doing your job well. But I learned from those roles as a commissioner that we needed to show what we did. And I learned it from, you know, young people coming up through the environment movement. The climate, the school strike for climate is a great example of just exactly that. So the theory of change, start where you are, organise and show what you did. But the showing what you did is one of the things that I think goes hand in hand with the Uluru Statement, the vote this year, getting to yes and making sure that we have the conversations we need to have to end up with a positive outcome. And we've done that here in this little town, so bear with me and I'll just share with you a, a really light, a really light-hearted response to these gripping, onerous, visceral stories. And we sat around the kitchen table here and said, let's do something about yes, let's do something about the gift. Let's think about how we can celebrate the Uluru Statement and, and, get, and get to yes. And we initially thought, oh, look, we'll have, a, we'll have a Euroa Yes Forum. And one of the young women at the table who's got small children said, could we have a picnic? And, of course, we all said, hey, fabulous, a Euroa Yes picnic. And over about four nights we sat down, organised around that and rang people like Jill Gallagher, who some of you will know was the Commissioner for Treaty here in Victoria, getting the treaty process underway. Wonderful woman, Jill Gallagher. You probably know her, Anna Greta. She's very involved with Aboriginal health and VATCHO in particular. And we just rang Jill and said, we're going to have this picnic on a Sunday. Would you be able to come? And she just said, yes, what date? And we then rang Uncle Herbie Patton, again a member of the Patton family who had that deep history back into the 1930s, and he said, yeah, what date? And, of course, we wanted Uncle Herbie to come along and play the gum leaf. Now, it sounds a little um, um, pixie land, I suppose you might say. Some people said, play the gum leaf. But he came along and he played the gum leaf and he played some Florentine waltzes. So there we are, you know, we're off in Italy with, with the gum leaf. But he stopped playing and he approached the microphone and he wasn't originally going to talk. He approached the microphone and he said, I want to talk about the 1967 referendum. And he talked about his experience of that. He talked about, as we all know, that allowed for Aboriginal people to be counted and now they want to be heard. And that's really what he said and it was the most extraordinarily evocative um, way of bringing Uluru together with the 1930s with the history of our country, with Gumleaf playing, with um, Uncle Herbie and the Patton family and, and Jill Gallagher and all of we whites sitting there around the uh, Sevens Creek Park. 
And in fact, one of the other things that I thought was really important about that picnic was we began it with an acknowledgement of country, not, not a rote acknowledgement of country, but a recognition that Euroa was in fact a place of meeting, a place of ceremony, a place where people raised their kids and let them swim and settled differences. And it really spoke to a lot of people to hear the acknowledgement linked to Aboriginal peoples, again, generous extension of the hand in that way. Now, if you'd said to us in Euroa six years ago that we were going to do that and that we would get between two and 300 people to attend, we might have said, you're dreaming, but that's how many people did attend and they came from everywhere and wonderfully... There was somebody there from um, Lilydale who's now gone away and they're having a yes picnic in Lilydale at the end of March. People came up from Seymour and they've started their kitchen table conversations about just exactly the same issue because they will do it differently. They can't organise a forum such as the one we did or a picnic such as the one we did. They have a different sort of tone in their community and they need to unlearn things differently than, than we do at the moment. So I suppose, look, the environment movement's made a lot of that possible for me because it's about showing what you did. And essentially, if I hadn't done the environmental work, I would probably still be rather more isolated than I was when I realised that the team, the team is everything. Hey, this has been such an amazing story and the way in which we We've listened to you weave together your personal history, the Australian colonial history, uh, the remarkably important and extraordinarily challenging elements of truth-telling and bringing it back so powerfully to the community at the end. For me, I watched the Rachel Perkins documentary on the Australian wars when I was travelling recently. And when I think about truth-telling and its importance, it really just informs how important the conversations that we have to have around the voice now are. Hey, how important do you think it is for non-Indigenous Australians to participate in the discussion and this process of reconciliation leading towards the referendum later this year? We'll be better people if we do, Anna Greta, I think. We'll all be better people. People like me, you know, who somebody will say, yeah, well, you would say that. But people like me who are a bit already linked, people who aren't, people who don't know, people who haven't been exposed to it. I mean, my old dad was fond of saying to me that not everybody's had your advantages, my girl, and he was right. He was seriously right because, you know, if I, wanted to, if I want to go to the bookshelves and find out about this stuff, I can. I think the conversations we need to have around this um, statement now are the ones where we can spare people the book learning. And I think that's important because I don't know that everybody's got the patience to do what some of us are prepared to do for informing ourselves. Not everybody's got an education habit like you or me, Anna Greta, just, they just don't. So I, I think the conversations are going to bring people in in ways that uh, learning from books or learning from universities will not. And it also gives us the chance to get out on country to do it, I think. So I think that I'm going to struggle to say what I want to say here, but I, th I think being at the 
picnic park for us made what we did so much stronger for our Yes Picnic and we need to be having the conversations in place and we need to be recognising we are in place to have them. Somebody said to me, and this brings me right back to O'Leary of the underworld, somebody, I think uh, Philip Adams, somebody said to me, so what, what is this underworld stuff? And I said, it's a state of mind and it's a physical place. And I think that we're at a stage in this discussion where we need both of those things to come together and a conversation rather than a library is going to be a much easier place to do it. Kate, this has been a remarkable conversation. Um, one of the things that Anna Gretner and I wanted to explore um, on the podcast in our first few episodes for, for 2023, which is such an important year as we move towards that referendum on The Voice, is to, to think about what it is to be Australian um, at this point in time. And I think you have mapped that so powerfully. You've given us so much to think about. Thank you for joining us today and thank you for the work that you do. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Sharon, one of the phrases, the many phrases that Kate used in today's conversation really struck me, that this is not a parlour game. Our process of Indigenous reconciliation is not a game. It's not fun. And at times it's going to be tremendously difficult and confronting for many of us. I was so pleased to be able to have this conversation today. I think the the wisdom and experience that Kate brings to the dynamics around the process of colonisation, the challenges of reconciling with our, our past and the way in which we can work together moving forward are inspiring. I'm so, so grateful for her time and wisdom today. Yeah, I, I agree, Anna Greta. I've been thinking a lot over the past few months about who we are as a country, about our history and also our vision for the future and our, our origin story, coming to terms with the truth of where we've come from, and as Kate said, both learning and unlearning, does give us a way of forging a unique and, and a just future. And I also think, Anna Greta, reflecting on, on what Kate was talking about, you know, she, she talked about and she has written about incredible horrors that are so confronting. But I also loved the way she told stories of hope and of partnership and of how we can share our humanity and create friendships for change that can be the foundation for the future. It is so powerful to hear the history of places, both the bad that we need to acknowledge and respect, but also the good. And I really love Kate's stories about the Koori Court in Shepparton um, and the meaning around the law court, which is such a dominant part of that townscape. So on so many levels, I found that a powerful com conversation a confronting one, but also an inspirational one. Mm, absolutely. And the way in which she ties together the work that's been done on, envir on environment and on climate change, the work done at the, with the community-based independent movement of changing how politics is done and tying all of these threads together into a beautiful discussion on the importance of Indigenous reconciliation and a yes vote for the voice. So, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on the ANU Crawford School Policy Forum pod. If you enjoyed this pod, please leave us a review. And for further information on the matters that we've discussed in this episode, please see the show notes. You can reach out to us. We always love to hear from you. We are on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. And if today's episode has raised any issues for you. We have discussed a number of confronting uh, issues and stories. 
In Australia, you can contact Lifeline on 131114. We will continue these discussions over the next few weeks uh, as we explore the challenge of Indigenous reconciliation and the remarkable opportunities that come from contending with our colonial past. But from me, till next time, it's bye for now. And from me, Sharon Bessel, we will see you next week. <laughs>